I want to talk about why you don't need a huge budget for effective marketing today. We have a technique that we're actually deploying right now where we are searching for investors for a startup that we're involved in. And we call this strategy Licker. That's L-I-C-R and it stands for LinkedIn Icebreaker and Content Relationship. Basically, the process is very, very simple. We have identified a number of companies where we feel we might be a good fit for them to invest into our particular startup. Once you have this list, you want to go through and make a uh, Google Sheets form where you're listing all of these. So that way you can track where you are with this particular outreach. Now, the outreach part of the program is going to entail going to those people's LinkedIn profiles, and you're going to start commenting and liking some of their posts, right? So when you think about this strategy, the approach that a lot of people take is they will just sort of vomit out, like basically come and say, here, buy my shit, right? Or invest in my shit. And they, they start pitching you and they start you know hammering you with whatever it is that they are trying to sell or whatever it is that they want from the particular contact. Rather than taking that approach, build that relationship first. What you're trying to do here with this strategy of commenting and liking their information is you're trying to get on the radar. You're trying to show them who you might be, who you are, and what types of things you are involved in, right? So again, everyone is vain. Everyone checks to see who it is that has looked at their profile and who's commented on their stuff. So you are starting to stand out from the crowd by taking this type of approach. And the exact steps that you do this with is you want to go and find something that they have posted recently, right? If you can comment on that particular thing, maybe add a little bit of value, that's perfect. And then you want to scroll all the way down to the bottom or you know, many, many months through uh, all of their posts. And then you want to like and comment on some of those things because then as the person who owns that profile looks at what you're doing or what what you have seen basically they feel like you have gone through and read their entire profile and you are you are learning about this particular person you're learning about what types of things they are interested in and they like to post so this is a great great strategy that you can basically do for free to be able to get in front of people that you are trying to be able to get in front of If you are a business owner looking to grow your net worth, come check us out at investinsquarefeet.com. We have a number of programs that are doing exactly that. Again, investinsquarefeet.com. Come check us out. Today, we are going to be talking about all things AI with John Ricketts, who actually, interestingly enough, has a long history in AI platforms and AI technologies. AI is something that all companies are considering, but they don't really necessarily know where to start. And that's exactly what we talk about today with John, where we dive into understanding what you should be looking at from your specific company and if AI is a good solution that can help streamline your processes and ultimately 
perhaps even save you money on your monthly budgets. I think my the, the thing that I struggled with the most uh, was also one of my greatest strength in that being that fresh out of school without a lot of experience, you don't know what you don't know. And there comes with that a natural sense of, am I doing things the right way? Or mm-hmm. you question yourself. But on the other side of that coin, there is this this opportunity to just dive headfirst in because you don't have any bias. You've removed any potential bias that you have. And from my perspective, the hardest things for me were just consuming skills and consuming knowledge that helped improve my skills in areas that I need to. Things that I didn't have formal training in, which is high level accounting and finance, how to structure cap tables, how to talk to investors. Those are things that that typically aren't taught in a school setting. But because I, I hadn't had any experience at the time, I, w- I was just I was able to be a sponge and just watched, consumed, learned, honed my craft. And like anything else in life, over time, the, m- the more you practice, the better and more confident you're going to become. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know that right now, you obviously, with the market the way that it is, it's very difficult to be able to raise money. A lot of people are trying to do that. Do you remember any tips or breakthroughs that you might have had or realized when you're going out and pitching or even creating a pitch deck? Any advice for someone who's looking to go out and maybe who might have never raised any money before? What are some of the things that you've realized along the way that have helped you become a better raiser? Having, having raised capital through multiple sort of macroeconomic cycles, both in good cycles, up cycles and down cycles. It's my opinion that there are a couple of things that never change, regardless of, of how the broader economy is doing. And one thing that uh, that should never be absent is energy and, and enthusiasm and passion for what you're doing, what you're pursuing. I think as a founder or as a leader of a company that's going to solicit capital, that has to be apparent. You have to believe in what you're doing. You have to believe in what your team's doing, first and foremost. And then usually there's a certain elegance and simplicity. Spreadsheets are really interesting. And I think most people realize you can torture data to to make it say what you want it to say. But I think being very reasonable and setting the stage and being able to understand your market and understand what the return and the time on return could potentially be for an investor is very important. And then I think the third thing that I will say that would complement those first two is being able to tell it and being able to tell the story in a really natural way. I think a lot of times when you're you know, some people um, and, and myself, I used I used to do this and probably to a certain extent still do this, although I'm a little more aware of of best practices now. But you have to the, the story matters and there's a human element that shouldn't be ignored. Why? did you choose to pursue this? You know, how did you come to know your co-founders or your leadership team? And really being truthful and accurate in disclosing, hey, this is what we know. This is where we're going to attack. These are the problems that we see. And and then linking up to people that genuinely care about your success. In, in up cycles, good economic markets, there's a little more of a bullish sense among either angel investors or venture funds, whomever you're raising capital from, capital becomes a little more available in those. 
But I think going out and raising money in, in a not so good broader economy makes you get really dialed in because it's very competitive. There's still the same number of companies that are mm -hmm. looking for capital, but the capital that's available to raise becomes a little more strict in terms of where it's getting deployed. So I think from a best practice standpoint, it's almost treat every single market as it's going to be really hard because raising money is hard. There's nothing really easy about it. And then leverage your network, link up with people. You never know who's going to be able to help you. I think that's the thing is that remove the bias of, oh, I shouldn't reach out to this person because they're not capable of writing a check. The alternative to that is no, reach out to this person, explain why you're reaching out to them, explain why you're looking for their help and, and pick their brain. And you, mm -hmm. you never know who someone else knows. So that would be, that would be my advice. Yeah, I love it. I love it. When you are saying the story matters and the human element is there, how much of a story is it that you're looking or would you say is the right amount to be able to deliver to someone? Are we getting into the weeds, the nitty gritty, or is it more trying to explain like this is, this is what the system, let's just say, is going to do and this is who it's going to help. Is that enough of a story? Just simply honing in on the problem and then this is what it's going to do? Or is there more to it than that? Should you get more in depth than that, would you say? I think you should be prepared to get more in depth than that. I think the story matters. It really depends on the audience. It matters more to some than others. I've, in my career, I've had probably, I don't know, 500 to 700 conversations with potential funders across, across a variety of fundable applications. And some want the story more than others. Some want to say, hey, just tell me about the tech or tell me about the project and who it's going to help or how it's going to return my capital. So I think having the awareness of who you're talking to is very important. But I think everyone should be prepared to tell more of the story because at the end of the day, it's people that make decisions right now, largely. We're moving into an area where, where software is starting to encroach on some of that, but people buy and make buying decisions and funding decisions based on other people. Yeah. So that really matters. The tech, the widget, the real estate project, that's what gets the meeting. Um, but I've found that when you take the Paul Harvey rest of the story approach to show the why and the how and the who, that really matters and really helps. Yeah. Yeah. And what if you don't necessarily have the how or the who or any anything like that? Would that be maybe something that you need to go back and, and think about those types of, of parts to be able to craft that part of the story? Or if there isn't anything like that, again, you're, are you manifesting this type of a story or creating this type of a story just so that you have that story there. I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Maybe that's even, maybe that's even a sign that, you know what, we're not ready to go out and raise capital yet because we don't have this kind of a story that these types of details yet. Just curious your thoughts there. If you don't have that piece fully baked out and you do come across access to capital, I can guarantee that you're going to spend a portion of that capital uh, coming up with the answers to what you just, to what you just asked. I think there's really a litmus test, um, you know, there has to be a movement from ideation to this would be a really interesting science project to this is a viable business that could be commercialized. And where I've seen and, and I've also experienced, there's been some fantastic ideas that really get hung up at, is this a science project 
or is this a business? Mm -hmm. And even internally now at our company, when we talk about roadmaps and we talk about things that we want to improve upon or even introduce, that's the language that we use. Anything that's half-baked or quite frankly, not fully baked is still a science project. And so we prefer, and, and conversely, I prefer to have all of those things known. Now, you don't have to come up with all those answers yourself because we've all been there. We've all had a great idea. And I think some of the greatest creation comes from people that or your non-subject matter experts in a particular industry, because you tend to see things just in a different way. But if you don't have the answers to that, it's highly recommended to surround yourself with people that have spent a lot of time in there and people that are capable of telling or telling you this is a bad idea or capable of saying, okay, I see where you're going with this, but I would strongly caution either against this or either pursuing another path. So all that to say, you don't have to do it yourself. And I, I prefer to surround myself with people that, that that really lift the collective knowledge of the group and get as many perspectives that are necessary. Sometimes that's three, sometimes that could be 30. But it's all about moving it from, okay, is this a science project or is or do we have a business here? Mm -hmm. and, and for the listeners, we haven't really dove into what it is that you're doing today. Explain like what the market is, what who the, the target audience is, what it is that you guys do. Just go into that a little bit. Yeah. So we're an artificial intelligence company um, that, that creates uh, AI enabled software and we sell it to large sort of enterprise level brands and retailers in the e-commerce space. And so our company is ecom, E-K-O-M.ai, our product rather. And we plug in to, to digital websites that are selling products online and we can leverage AI to optimize and engineer content that exists on that website that, that pairs very nicely in trends with high frequency search market data. So we, we're a software company at our core and we have a, a tremendous amount of experience in AI at the application layer. We're not a foundation model. so. We're not an open AI or certainly a Google or NVIDIA. We are taking the foundation model opportunities and then creating at the application layer that identifies really uh, meaningful uh, use cases for AI. I think we've been in a situation where there's kind of an AI sandbox in 2023. If I had to recap, it would be, wow, we've had all these new tools, these new AI tools that have been dumped out. And we spent some people a year, some people now this is year four or five, others it's year 15 and 20. But now we're starting to discover, okay, with all these new tools, where's the real economic value in applying some of this? And so that's where we're focused. Yeah, yeah. And when you're saying the economic value of applying these different tools, you're talking about that from the, call it the retail's perspective or your client's mm -hmm. perspective. How do you bring all of this data that you guys have collected for all from all these different sources and utilize it and do something with it, right? That's it. It's a lot of, a lot of data management and then taking data from multiple disparate sources and making it relevant in inside of one particular application that ultimately has to tie to some sort of a business outcome. And for us, you know, that economic value is found through, through bringing more uh, people to websites, to converting these buyers when they're on the website faster. And ultimately that drives more revenue. Yeah. That's interesting. You mentioned you, you were going through the different years there. 
where some people have been in this 15, 20 years. Uh, and obviously you guys are, it sounds like you're primarily AI. How long have you guys been working in an AI type format or delivering that type of deliverable? For most of the listeners, AI just really came online, call it in the last year and a half, two years, maybe at that, that might even be pushing it for a lot of people. So I'm just curious from your perspective, how far back does your experience go in this particular, you know, this particular vertical? Yeah. So collectively, that's a great question because it seems like it just showed up on everyone's doorstep in the last 12 months. But collectively inside of our organization, we have uh, about 35 to 40 years of wow. experience inside of AI. You know, AI is not really, it's not really that new. It goes back several decades. I think what's new and why most people consider it to be new is that at the application layer, being able to take this from more of an academic setting and apply it, I think, at the application layer where tools and apps and software can be built relatively quickly, has just been really in the last probably four years. There was a, a the basis of the foundation model, the transformer model that really allows for a lot of what we're seeing and experimenting with today is about four years old at this point. But I think the interesting thing about AI is that is, is certainly in its predictive capabilities but the speed at which you can execute you know, tasks or data data analytics, that's caused this, this rush and feeling of, wow, everything now is AI. And I think we're still at the beginning of this. There's things that we're still learning. I think that we're certainly not in a mature market. It's, it's certainly emerging. But anyone that says that uh, anybody making any sort of affirmative statement, at least at the application layer right now, I would also dare say at the foundation level of AI, I would be very, very cautious because things are changing very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I'm curious your perspective on something. I, and I have a little bit of background with retail as well. And when I started getting involved in retail projects, I thought that these are monster companies. They've got so much uh, capability and so much, uh, they've got to be so far advanced. Would you say that retail typically is, you know, leading this type of, this type of an organization or this type of a movement, or are they still quite a ways behind on their adoption of these types of methodologies and tools and systems? Yeah, I think broadly, you'd have to step down from, I can't say that retail is leading or lagging. I think like any sector or industry, you have participants in retail that are leading or lagging. We have seen, and we work with some of the most forward thinking brands in terms of operationally, how are they going to succeed in a digital first environment? And I think retail is, is really at an inflection point particularly with large brands that have relied on physical real estate for several decades, even up to, to hundreds of years. And there's this massive transition now to digital first with the understanding that there's a pendulum with everything. So I think retail has, has been physical, but now the tools that are available for anyone, whether you have an Etsy shop or an Amazon store, or you are Best Buy or you're an OEM, um, the playing field has largely been leveled in terms of how you approach selling digitally. And what we typically find is we work with some of the, the larger brands in the space is that this is just a company ethos thing. It's 
less about technological sophistication, but do they want to move quickly and embrace new technology? Or are they more of that middle curve in the market that wants to take a wait and see approach? And what we're seeing right now is those that are certainly moving to the front and embracing applications like ours, but but there's countless others as well in different spaces, they're starting to see benefits much, much faster. Again, we're out of that science project uh, environment and into meaningful business outcomes. So all that to say, I think some are doing it better than others, like pretty much everywhere. So you touched on this and I'm just, again, curious your perspective on this. When you are an organization whatever size it might be, and you're thinking about going down this path, what are some of those questions or some of those things that you maybe should identify internally that you know should already be in place or you should be thinking about before you go down this type of path, right? You identified it a minute ago when you were saying, are you willing to adopt these methodologies quickly? Or is it you're in a situation where there's a number of people that have to sign off on all these things and it's typically a slow moving environment. Maybe we're not quite ready for this type of a step. Can you define that a little bit more so that people can understand, yeah, maybe we should be looking at this type of an approach based on where our internal thinking is at? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, So I think I can answer that in two parts. I think the first part is when you look at, and I'll just use AI as an example, uh, because that's what we're in and that's what we know. A lot of companies are, and you can read public company quarterly earning calls and listen to these calls, and everybody's talking about putting AI on their strategic plans for 2024, and that's a big company initiative. And AI is very exciting because In theory, there are some limitless possibilities with what you can do with it. But I think where we're seeing the most success, and even outside of our company, what we're doing and just talking to customers around other applications they've adopted, is I think right now AI is doing a really nice job of taking processes that that are traditionally slow and manually reliant and, and delivering software applications to expedite those processes. Mm-hmm. And, and that too is a slippery slope because when you say, all right, the old way of doing something or the current way of doing something is, it involves a lot of people and things that involve a lot of people typically take a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And you say, oh, great, we're a company so-and-so and we have this product that will expedite it and we don't need your people doing it. There, there's a real uh, sort of recoil or hesitancy there. It's okay, we want the technology but there's people at the other end of this. What do we do with them? And so I think the, the companies that are succeeding right now are saying, okay, where are the existing applications that are bottlenecks for us? Where are the real challenges? Are there, is there software, is there AI that we can evaluate or bring in house that may help us from a business perspective? And there's, a, there's something in healthcare that gets said quite a bit. It's around working up to the level of your licensure. You have a lot of very highly trained Uh, people that sometimes in a clinical setting or even a hospital setting can get mired down in doing more sort of administrative tasks. And so we like to borrow from that and say, hey, where are those opportunities to allow your people with much higher skill sets to work up to their level of licensure? And all the while addressing these slow bottleneck uh, things that are in your way. So that's where it starts. I think that's really where we are right now. And even for our company, as an AI company, we're looking and constantly evaluating, are there pieces of our own tech stack for our operations that we can bring in to allow us to scale faster, 
to allow us to reallocate, you know, human capital to better places. And so it's really, it's a fun time. It's a very chaotic time because there's a lot of decisions to be made, but I think the companies that are focusing right now on hey, where can we change slow manual processes, they're winning. The companies that are out there going, wow, it's AI, we, the possibilities are limitless. There's no clearly defined target. And it's really just theoretical. And there's a lot of excitement and hype around that. But where's the real business outcome? Where's the real economic value from this project? Because at the end of the day, the companies have the resources they've got. In theory, you've got IT support. You've got marketing teams, at least those that, that we work with do. So they have all of the requisite structural pieces to manage this new technology wave. It's just about where do you move the chess pieces on the board to receive even more benefit after that? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that's a fantastic answer. I love, I really like the part where you're focusing in on making sure that they are using their, using the knowledge that they should be using rather than getting mired down in the various admin type tasks. You're drawing this correlation to AI, its popularity, everyone has it on their list of things that they want to do. But then on the other side of that, you are drawing it back to the bottlenecks, right? These are the types of things that we should be identifying or we should be looking at. Can you define what some of those bottlenecks are that are typically common that maybe people might be glancing over. I didn't realize we could even use AI to be able to fix that type of a thing, right? Bring that in and being able to say, these are the types of things that you should be looking at and focusing in on and looking to focus or to fix those things first before all the grandiose ideas that AI potentially could have. Yeah. So let's take a small business, for example, that may spend, you know, five to $10,000 a month on an outside marketing agency. Okay. And this marketing agency for that monthly spend is running their social media. They're managing their website. They're doing SEO. They're writing blogs. They're doing paid campaigns on Google. So like for that, let's just call it $10,000 a month is what the small business is spending on that. There's $1,500 going here, 2000 going here, 1500 going here. So when you step back and look and say, okay, what am I really getting for my 10,000? And so let's look at the bottlenecks typically come in the form of, at least in marketing from content, it's content creation. So are there ways to be able to leverage a tool like a chat GPT or a mid journey for image creation? There are a host of tools that are out there and we have a product as well called Writerly that we help a lot of people generate SEO performing long form content in a fraction of the time. And so I think being able to pull some of those things back, if you have an, if you have you know, someone in an administrative role that you could say, Hey, instead of us, I don't want to decrease my spend with my marketing agency. I just want more of those dollars going to performance marketing and not writing long form blogs for backlinking purposes or more technical things. I want those dollars going to things that are driving social media awareness and building brand equity. Those are places that, again, it's a manual task, right? Anything that requires um, sort of manual contribution, we've got some really interesting tools out there that can save a lot of time for people. Even someone who is non-technical, I think in a, in a couple of days could get very adept, at least at writing very reasonable, producing very reasonable 
and interesting pieces of long form content that they could then say, Hey, instead of you guys taking $2,000 a month of my budget to write blogs, like I can do this in 30 or 60 minutes a week, or I've got someone on my team can do that in 30. And so really it's just a reallocation of resources. I think a lot of people want to conflate AI with this binary decision. Like if I bring AI in then something else has to go out. But I think if you approach it more of resource allocation to things that have a much higher ROI, then you'll begin to say, yeah, I'm spending money with this service provider on something that I've got someone over here that isn't as busy maybe as they once were, or they're very skilled and I can have them do something else. And every business is different. Every business is unique, but I, we've had several years of conversations with businesses from SMB all the way up to enterprise. But the thinking is still the same. It's where can I maximize my return through utilizing some of these new tools that are available? Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. What, what are you most excited about? Maybe something you've even heard of, or oh, I can't wait for it to be able to do that. Are there things that you've heard of on the horizon or are maybe even excited about deploying right now that your current projects or current workload has directed you toward? Yeah, I think the number one thing on the horizon, both near near term and, and long term, is going to be around trust and accuracy in AI. You or your listeners may have may have heard the term hallucinations, and you see these things on LinkedIn and Twitter all the time. Of I asked AI to do this, and this is what it created, and look how silly it is, and AI doesn't know what it's doing. And a lot of that goes back to the original input prompt, but a lot of it goes to really at its core these models that, that are producing these outputs are probabilistic models. And, and what that means is that AI is nothing more than a series of statistical inferences and in saying, hey, what is the, the likelihood or probability of the next word or next sequence of words or next statement going to satisfy the original input request? And so the better you are on the inputting, there's a strong correlation, the better the output will also be. So I think there's some really interesting things in the works that are around how do we enhance the accuracy? A lot of it has to do with the person using it, but let's assume for a second that we don't all have time to become upskilled in AI prompting. What are the tools that can level set us from an automation standpoint to get better at predicting what we were trying to say or trying to get at? And those are things right now that you'll see even Google with their search generated experience, the way that we search Google is, is going to change or the way that we search Google won't change. The way that the information as a result of our search, how it's served to us will change for the better. But that's really at this point and ourselves internally, we spent a lot of time refining our application. And we just released some data last week after we, we looked at 140,000 unique product descriptions across a number of different companies that we've optimized. And we released a, a, some press around a new feature called True Nexus Intelligence. And it's really only about getting a higher rate of accuracy and intent and, and predictability from the AI output. So I think getting people a little more accustomed to it, but it all goes back to this, right? We've had about 12 to 18 months, most people, of casual, maybe chat GPT usage. And it's okay. It's good, not great. Some people that have really learned and, and refined their skills are getting some really impressive uh, results from it. But how do we take that to everyone? And then I think over time, we're all going to become much better and much more accustomed to using uh, these powerful tools that are AI enabled. 
But right now it's, okay, how do we meet the market where they are without asking everyone to really learn new skill sets? How do we make this easy for everyone? And that's what we're working on and really excited to see other people working on it too. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. You made me think of this. So I've been an entrepreneur for 25 years or so, and I can remember I think I want to say that these are probably like newspaper ads for people who are posting what they're good at, their skills, the resume, basically. And I remember some of the skills would say proficient at Google or something along those lines, right? Mm -hmm. And back then, Google was new, right? People didn't quite understand how to use it. And and that was a skill set back then. This is obviously the new version of that, the new the new learning curve that everyone is trying to grasp. Do you feel like there's any better trainings or ways that you could suggest to people where they can start developing these types of skills to become better at prompts and better, better interactions with the chat GPTs and all of that so that as this does evolve and more tools do come out, it's not such an overwhelming learning curve for them? Great question. What I'm seeing, and I think what other people are seeing, at least from a digital resource perspective, are even getting on Reddit or LinkedIn or Twitter or just a general general Google search. There are so many resources that are beginning to emerge to teach people, right? It's this unstructured way right now, like anything, that will all converge into sort of these more predictable rubrics and curriculums and things like that. But even YouTube, getting on YouTube and just watching how people are walking through their prompts and how they're getting outputs that are desired from really complex requests and being able to see other people doing it in real time is very powerful. And it's if you look around, you think, what a time to be able to learn a new skill. We have all of these resources available to us through our keyboard and through our phone and through our laptops. A simple search on how do I start to use ChatGPT will yield hundreds or thousands of results. And, and I've seen things you can enroll in formal classes, formal curriculums to just, hey, here's a 10-part video series of how I went from you know, complete novice or beginner to, to AI prompting to now I have this really unique skill set and other people are coming to me to ask and teach. But the term is really around prompt engineering. You know, how do you build these input prompts? to get the output that's desired at a higher rate of frequency. And, and you're right. We see, we have headhunters that, that reach out to us proactively saying, Hey, we've got these phenomenal prompt engineers that have built their skills at this company or X company or have you know, this out of the other. And it's a very unique skill set. And if you even get on Indeed or, or, or LinkedIn and look, you know, just do a search for jobs around prompt engineering, it's a very popular job posting right now because it's a very important skill set for a lot of people. Um, Over time, I think what, like many things, what is extremely valuable from a skill set held captive by a few, even though that number is growing uh, every day and every week, will eventually recede and all of us will have had enough time and experience where what we see as the advanced prompt engineers today, who knows, 10, 15 years, kids that are six, seven, eight years old today will have that level of skill set even earlier in their career. But that's what's going to carry us forward over the next several decades as, as we get our arms around this. It's, it's having the availability to learn 
and to absorb and consume this type of, of information from other people. Because again, it's, it, we're at the beginning. It's really not going anywhere. It's just absolutely amazing everything that AI is doing today and how many things it is impacting and touching. So if you're not on the AI bandwagon, uh, you need to start learning it. If you want to learn more from John, check him out on LinkedIn, and that is J-O-N-R-I-C-K-E-T-T-S. And John actually has a couple of different products, as you probably were aware from this episode. If you want to check out their product that is in the commerce-focused AI field, that is Ecom, which is E-K-O-M dot A-I. And secondly, they have another product called Writerly, which you can learn more about that at writerly.ai, W-R-I-T-E-R-L-Y dot A-I. And remember, if you are a business owner looking to increase your net worth, come and check us out at investinsquarefeet.com. Again, check us out, investinsquarefeet.com. We have a number of programs that are doing exactly that. No, couldn't agree more. Love it. John, if people want to learn more about you or your services, how, what would be the best way for them to uh, reach out and get in touch? Yeah, sure. I'm on LinkedIn. That's just John Ricketts, J-O-N, and then R-I-C-K-E-T-S. Our company is, we have two distinct standalone products. So the first I mentioned was Ecom. It's E-K-O-M dot A-I. And that is our vertical e-commerce focused AI product. And then Writerly was our first product. That's W-R-I-T-E-R-L-Y. AI is our more horizontal, templated-based AI platform for content production and, and editing. So feel free to check out each website. Feel free to reach out over LinkedIn. I'm always happy to engage and, and answer any questions and, and be a help wherever I can. I, I spend at least a portion of my time every year with a couple of people that are beginning their journey as an entrepreneur or a founder um, and love being able to pay it forward. I've had the benefit of having some others pour into me over the years and uh, love doing that for other people. Ah, that's great. That's great. Love it. Yeah. Thank you so much.